Welcome to episode 124 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, I'm joined today by uh, two regulars, Alan Cohn, formerly the number two in policy at DHS, and Michael Vadis, uh, uh, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, uh, now in our New York office. Alan is here in Washington with me. I am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and holding the record for returning to step down to practice law more times than any other lawyer. I, uh, this is the empty promises edition uh, uh, because um, for the second uh, week in a row, I've had to say, yeah, we're just about to interview Will Hurd um, and uh, append his interview to the uh, podcast, but uh, we couldn't get to it last week. Uh, and uh, uh, it'll be another couple of days this week, I'm hoping. So uh, we're just doing a news roundup today. Oh, let's jump right in, in fact, uh, because by the time you listen to this, uh, oh, the EU should have approved the privacy shield and uh, it should be all over except the signing signature. So uh, uh, if you've been wondering what to do with yourself uh, after... Uh, having the safe harbor pulled out from under you, it's time to consider joining the privacy shield. Uh, uh, I don't know, Alan, uh, uh, Michael, uh, uh, any advice on? Uh, I have I have a view on that, but uh, uh, your thoughts on whether people who were comfortable under safe harbor should join uh, uh, privacy shield? Well, I think that one thing that I would take note of is that uh, among the the country, the, the, the national government's voting, um, Austria abstained from the vote. Um, Austria, well, Croatia, and, and uh, yeah, the little, that little tight one uh, that, that they took from Austria in World War I. Uh, um, uh, now I've forgotten the name of the country. But yes, uh, it's all the people who um, uh, were probably pretty comfortable with the Nazis, but who got to portray themselves as victims of Nazism after the war. That wasn't exactly where I was going with that. Um, but I do think it's, a, it's maybe a, a small red flag that the debates over this aren't over and that um, – we could continue to see challenges oh, for sure. to adequacy. Yeah, the, the, the European Court of Justice uh, has empowered the uh, uh, data protection authorities to uh, uh, come in and, and, and second-guess the deal. Exactly. So uh, while I think that the privacy shield represents a, a good solution, and it's certainly a solution that both the, uh, the U.S. government is happy to have and the European Commission seems desperate to have um, – the question of those same considerations of adequacy that undid uh, Safe Harbor uh, are still rumbling about out there. Yeah, I think that's true. Michael? Yeah, you know, the DPAs are empowered to uh, to challenge it, but the only entity that can, that can say that it's uh, invalid or illegal is the European Court of Justice. So I think it's definitely advisable for companies that don't have uh, standard contractual clauses in place or binding corporate rules to, to sign up to the privacy shield so they can transfer data to entities in the U.S. And it may not last, you know, decades uh, or, or even very long, but it's going to last at least a year or two um, once it's once it's formally in place. And, you know, there's there's not a lot of other good options out there. Yeah, I, I think that's I, – I, you've pretty much said what I would have said, which is if you spent the last six months coming up with a second 
uh, approach, uh, the model clauses, uh, uh, binding corporate rules, you're probably better off sticking with them and not buying into something that inevitably is going to have more litigation associated with it. But if you didn't, uh, your options are pretty limited. And the, and the, uh, the model contract clauses or standard contract clauses are, are themselves going to face uh, serious adequacy challenges ultimately before the ECJ. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're not necessarily um, foolproof either. So I, I, I can't help uh, suggesting to companies that are worried about this that a very modest additional investment uh, um, contributing one or two thousand dollars to the Europocracy Prize would guarantee that the European Court of Justice and all the data protection authorities would have a boatload of cases to, uh, on adequacy that didn't focus on the United States to, to chew on before they ever got around to uh, uh, deciding to invalidate Privacy Shield. So it's really a good investment, uh, uh, and I highly <laughs> recommend it. Okay, um, so uh, actual law. U.S. Appeals Court, Ninth Circuit, uh, has upheld uh, Nozel's conviction. This is the second time Nozel's gone to the uh, um, uh, Ninth Circuit. Last time he got off. This time he uh, was uh, his conviction was affirmed, um, and uh, um, it was a two-to-one decision. And it is proving controversial. Why is that, uh, Michael? Yeah, I think it's it, well. It's, it's got an interesting history. This case It's really the third decision out of the Ninth Circuit uh, since the first one went on bonk. So we had a panel decision That's and, right. a, and yes. an on bonk decision. Um, so they they just can't get enough of David Nosal in, in this case. But the, the the first case resulted in in the Ninth Circuit issuing uh, a narrow reading of the CFAA, in which it said basically that if if employees have authorization to access a company computer and then give information to someone uh, who's not authorized to have it for some unauthorized purpose, in this case start, starting up a rival company, that doesn't violate the act because the, comp- the employees were authorized to access the, the computer in the first place. It doesn't matter what they did with the information. The second time around, though, the government had a, a narrower um, uh, case, uh, which the Ninth Circuit has now upheld. What they did was basically uh, have a secretary who was still with the company uh, give them her credentials to access the computer, and then the, the former employees used her credentials to access the computer and, and gain data. And Ninth Circuit said, well, yeah, even though that secretary was authorized, um, they the former employees were not. And she did not have the official capacity to authorize them to access the company network. Um, so giving them her credentials didn't somehow turn that into an authorization. The reason this is controversial, a lot, a lot of uh, civil liberties groups and the dissent basically said, well, you're, what you're basically doing is outlawing password sharing. Because how is this different from uh, a wife letting her husband have her password to access her email or a bank account or something else? And the majority's response was basically, well, that's different. You know, this is a, what's happening in this case was people who left a company were affirmatively, to, you know, had their authority taken away from them and they circumvented that by having someone give them her credentials. That's very different. Yeah, it's different on the facts, but that's not really much of an explanation of why that should be different under the statute. So I think, I think it was the right result given what the statute says, but, it, but, uh, it does leave a lot of discretion in the hands of prosecutors about what cases they choose to bring. Yeah, it's enormous. I mean, I I, uh, I don't usually find myself agreeing with uh, 
the uh, the the leftmost uh, Ninth Circuit Justice uh, Reinhardt, uh, uh, yeah, but uh, I uh, I I thought his dissent was was fairly powerful. Maybe it's because uh, and don't tell anybody, but uh, uh, I have shared my Netflix password with my children, um, and uh, maybe that makes us all felons. Um, but it it was. A little troubling that uh, it could be um, authorized by the person who had the the password, but not authorized by the company, and therefore you should have known that that the authority of the person who had the password wasn't good enough. Um, I, and and I, he he makes the point that um, the company that wanted uh, this Nozel uh, prosecuted apparently spent something like a million dollars on. Uh, uh, O'Melveny and Myers uh, working up all the legal uh, theories on which he could be prosecuted so that the uh, prosecutors could uh, uh, pursue the case. And, you know, I couldn't help thinking of Hulk Hogan. Uh, uh, if if you can uh, have a sort of privatized uh, criminal prosecution, it is a little uh, troubling. Seems like an... Uh... <laughs> It's a huge waste of money, if you ask me, because <laughs> uh, because the, the theory seems pretty darn obvious. It 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 comports exactly with the plain language of the statute. I mean, these people were not employees; they did not have authority or any sort of authorization to access the system. I don't know. I don't know why it costs a million dollars to <laughs> think that that, that that might violate the statute. It's bizarre. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Okay, so uh, if, if you're 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 underbidding O'Melveny uh, for that uh, for that business next time, huh? Um, yeah, I think I would have given that that uh, advice for free. Loss leader. <laughs> All right. Well, um, we'll uh, move on to uh, to Russia. I, and uh, Michael, uh, Russia has been threatening to pass uh, a law tightening up. Uh, uh, the rules on the internet and uh, uh, their anti-terrorism uh, laws for quite a while. This is the uh, law that led uh, 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 Edward Snowden to complain for the first time about uh, uh, the authoritarian government in uh, Russia. Uh, the law passed nonetheless, uh, and it uh, calls, I, th- I think, the most significant regulatory aspects of it are Six-month data retention for all content. Boy, that sounds like a big task. And three years of metadata, which actually isn't all that different from uh, what the European Union was calling for, uh, which I think was somewhere between six months and two years. Uh, I'm, I'm puzzled at how the ISPs in Russia will be able to afford to keep all the content. Um, uh, but my guess is the metadata is not that hard to do. Uh, and now that it's law, they're probably going to have to. Yeah, the, the content part is what really struck me um, since the, the EU data retention directive and the now defunct directive didn't require the retention of content. Um, and this is not, you know, this the Russian law applies not just to text messages, uh you know, emails and, and text messages and things like that, but also voice and video content. So I, I'm not sure how telecom operators and ISPs are supposed to retain voice and video uh, content. Um, the other thing is that it, it also requires ISPs to make de- decryption keys available to the government upon request uh, or face fines for individuals or companies. So that's another a big deal. Russia has always been a place uh, 
that has had very strict rules on the use of encryption. Um, and this is just another extension of that, but that's that's a notable part of the law as well. Yeah, going to make it hard for all the Silicon Valley companies that are doing end-to-end encryption to uh, uh, to do business in the long haul uh, there, I suspect. Uh, you know, I, the EU has another uh, initiative that's also now uh, going into effect, uh, um, and that's uh, the uh, cybersecurity rules for critical industry and for digital, the digital industry. Uh, um, Alan, I don't know if you looked at that, but uh, I actually found myself thinking, yeah, it's, it's not not a terrible uh, regulatory approach uh, if you're going to do a regulatory approach. No, it's pretty interesting. Um, this is the Network and Information Security Directive, which we've talked about before, but has now been approved by the European Parliament. And this is kind of uh, an just because it's approved. This is this is <laughs> Europe. It's been approved. That doesn't mean it takes effect. It's got to be reenacted by every member state sometime in the next two years. Right. Right. And they have to go through a process, at least on the infrastructure side, of designating their operators and infrastructure of essential services. Well, kind and of we almost gave them like, that idea, is my memory. I was going to say. Said, we said critical infrastructure is stuff that meets this standard and we'll call you if you are. And we went further than that in the in the most recent uh, executive order by um, uh, under Section 9 of that executive order saying, and we'll create a, a, spe- a special list of, of – um, that which is most critical, and, yeah. and that will keep secret, but we'll let you know. Um, and so what's interesting about the, the Network and Information Security Directive is it attempts to bridge two areas which we don't put together, um, which is on the one hand the operators as essential services, and on the other hand the digital service providers. And so um, the there are there are different levels of... of um, requirements on each of those, but if you're in, in the essential services provider, that's energy, transportation, banking and finance, health, drinking water supply and distribution, and digital infrastructure, um, then you are subject to uh, a set of um, appropriate and proportional technical and organizational measures to manage risks uh, and prevent and minimize the impact of incidents. Um, and this is a place where the... Um, Again, you designate those uh, infrastructures that you are concerned about, and the member states have the ability to go on and impose stricter requirements Mm -hmm. than what's set forth in the framework of the directive. Uh, On the other hand, you have the digital service providers, which provide the online marketplace, the cloud computing, uh, the search engine services. Um, And those have to comply with the requirements, except for micro and small enterprises. Um, But again, they're looking at those appropriate and proportionate technical and organizational members, which in this instance are much more of a light touch approach. This is kind of a yeah, this, is, this is their comp- approach. Their compromise. I, right. I, I think when they say uh, digital providers, you can translate that as verdamta americaner. It's you know why not regulate them, those sons of bitches? Uh, uh, but then they were pulled off of that to a lighter touch. Yes, um, and they do make a nice nod. They do acknowledge that in the sense that they do note that there are providers that don't that aren't headquartered in Europe that might still operate in Europe and that they need to designate an individual to serve as kind of the single point of contact. Right. Wasn't there a parenthetical that said they, 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 they operate in 
Europe for now. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. I, <laughs> I, um, but there are some, and there are some other, uh, there are some other pieces that are that are useful. Interestingly, it requires each member state to develop a national strategy on the security of networks uh, and information systems. That's kind of the um, uh, full employment for consultants mm-hmm. provision. Um, you have uh, the member states being required to designate uh, a national authority to be responsible for monitoring the application of the directive, that each um, nation state is responsible for establishing at least one uh, what they call computer security incident response team, mm-hmm. what we would refer to as a CERT organization, yeah. um, and, a, uh, and a single point of contact uh, for liaison with the other member states and the coordination group. Um, and the CERT or CERT organization, uh, and a call out to Europol and the European Crime Center as kind of this uh, central point for coordination on um, cybercrime. So up to now, up to now, really, most of the innovations in cybersecurity defense have come out of the United States, the ideas and the, uh, even the government policies. But this looks to me as though, you know, over the next 21 months, I do not expect uh, Congress to adopt any of this. Uh, and so for the first time, the leading edge of at least regulation and the kinds of things that you really have to do as a company uh, could come from Europe. And uh, uh, they'll be experimenting and failing, but uh, also potentially succeeding in some areas and then will be re-importing this stuff ourselves. No, I think that's right. And I think that um, people should be prepared that the European, uh, both the the implementation of the framework uh, in total and also the member state implementation will stand on the shoulders of what's done here and innovate, as you said, yeah. past that uh, with a high likelihood that some of that may get re-imported. Which says that people should probably engage with this more than you ordinarily would uh, based on the size of the market just because um, you need to see this coming because it'll it'll likely get exported because, you know, this is, as they said in Yes Minister, uh, uh, right, we must do something. This is something. Therefore, we must do this. Uh, that 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 dynamic will be operating in this area too. There's also an acknowledgement that this intersects with a lot of other um regulatory regimes in place in the mm-hmm. EU, including over banking and finance, including over securities regulation, other elements. So especially for uh, companies and industries operating in places that are already regulated in one way, it'll be important to understand those interlinkages and how those pieces fit together. So uh, the Ninth Circuit had argument uh, in another case uh, uh this time involving Section 702, you remember that? That's the uh, FISA Amendments Act uh, uh, collection of data targeting foreigners, but with a connection to the United States. So it turns out to be a very effective anti-terrorism program, uh, uh, and it's coming up for renewal because of uh, the um, uh, sunset uh, in 2017. Uh, the, the the left libertarian agenda for 702 is to say, hey, wait a minute, you collect stuff that uh, touches on Americans' communications, even if you're targeting foreigners, and uh, if you search it for an American's name or phone number, you need to get a warrant because uh, uh, you didn't get a warrant the first time. Uh, that argument has been tried out on a couple of other courts and hasn't done so well. And my guess from listening to the argument in the Ninth Circuit, where that argument is again being made by 
Mohammed Mohammed, who uh, was convicted of a uh, uh, crime that included some 702 evidence, is probably doesn't work for him either. The judges listened to the ACLU arguments on that point and seemed pretty skeptical, basically saying, "Well, wait, this this is." This is lawfully co- collected. Uh, ACLU says, "Whoa, whoa we, we object. And the judge says, um, yeah, well, humor me. Uh, so let's say it was lawfully collected. Why shouldn't they be able to look at it again? And I didn't think there was a good answer to that. Uh, that, that is typically how we handle data. Yeah, it's got a, uh, that's collected by uh, government in a criminal case. They collect it once and um, uh, they have to have good process and a good basis for collecting it, and then it sits in their files, and if they want to go back and look at it for other lawful purposes, they can. Um, my guess is that's where the Second Circuit comes out. Uh, um, uh, Michael, I don't know if you listened to that. Uh, uh, any thoughts on, on uh, the likelihood of that argument prevailing? Uh, no, I didn't I didn't listen to it, but I think it's, it's more likely that there's going to be some sort of statutory amendment uh, rather than a court striking it down. Yeah, um, although, you know, it, when the left wins their cases, they always say, oh, well, it's been declared illegal, so the Congress has to give us what we want. Uh, uh, in this case, it's been declared legal by at least one court, and well, actually two, the FISA court as well, uh, and maybe a third by the time Congress gets this issue. Uh, you would think that that would lead Congress to be a little more cautious about amending the law. Yeah, but this is this is an area where you know the principal privacy protections have have come from Congress, whether it's under ACPA or or FISA, <clears throat> rather from a court saying what the Constitution requires. So you know there there has been at least noise about um, trying to limit the ability to uh, use 702 to circumvent. Um, restrictions on accessing Americans' communications. So we'll yeah, circumvent is a circumvent is a BS term. It's not circumventing. They, they, they're 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 legitimately targeting somebody. If they were reverse targeting somebody and using it as a subterfuge, it would violate uh, 702. What they're really objecting to is a secondary use of data that was lawfully collected. Uh, I've had people. Correct me when I talked about backdoor searches. This is really just a secondary reuse of data that was lawfully collected. Right. Well, you you you, you may not like the term, but it's a, it's a good English word that has its roots in, in Latin, and it, it uh, I think aptly applies here because <laughs> they couldn't get the information about the Americans uh, directly. And just because it's sitting in a database now, the government says, well, yeah, it was lawfully collected because we were targeting someone else. So now we should be able to get it. Um, but if they couldn't get it directly when they were from the communications of the Americans, you know, I think it's a fair use of the term to say circumvent. So yeah, we'll, you we'll know, look, I, I, does with that. they're entitled to get the communications of Americans with the terrorists they're targeting. Uh, uh, everyone agrees the, that that's uh, uh, permissible uh, and, and and goes without saying. If there's one end communication in the United States, there's a good chance that at least some of that is going to be an American talking to the to the terrorist target. Uh, I, I I just don't think that we're talking about circumventing here uh, uh, at all. Uh, um, but uh, you're right; it is a good Latin term. I, uh, all right. Um, the FCC uh, privacy and security regs just 
keep on attracting uh, comments. Uh, now the FBI and DOJ have weighed in, and they think Margaret Olhausen is nuts, right? Yes. So we have uh, the FBI, its parent organization, the Department of Justice, and the Secret Service um, joining together to comment on those rules and weighing in in support of the FCC's approach to expand data breach notification rules to broadband uh, providers. Um, this is not surprising um, that the law enforcement agencies would would see use uh, a utility to uh, to extending data breach notifications, but it certainly does seem to weigh in on one side of a uh, ongoing schoolyard spat yes. uh, between the two uh, the two regulators. All right, all right, uh, FTC, cool it. The cops are here. Uh, <laughs> all right, I, I just I cannot resist. Uh, you know, one more corpse floating by on the river. Uh, uh, Silent Circle, in addition to uh, flirting with bankruptcy, uh, has now it's now been discovered that their warrant canary, uh, which which they launched as part of their uh, uh, marketing plan, which sort of like Apple's was, uh, I'd like I'd like you to buy my product because I hate law enforcement too. Um, it, the warrant canary, which was a promise, I've never been served with any uh, uh, order by law enforcement or governments to produce data. Um, and the idea is you say that until it's no longer true, and then you just quietly take it down, and you're not actually telling people that you received a warrant, but you actually are. Uh, it's too clever by half, and it seems to me that uh, uh, a lot of people are beginning to see, you know, maybe this is not the world's best idea. Uh, they asked, uh, the, of course, the, the left, uh, in this case journalists, but I'm repeating myself, I uh, asked um, uh, uh, Silent Circle, how come you took it down? And they said oh, it was a business decision, which I think... Uh, means they decided they were losing business by being so aggressive about their uh, um, uh, distaste for law enforcement. So uh, last story, I couldn't resist this one. 10 million Android devices infected with Chinese malware. You know, no surprise there, uh, except 10 million is kind of low. But the company that produced the malware is is fascinating because they're actually a perfectly legit company. They make uh, anal uh, advertising analytics uh, and a variety of products uh, called Yingmob. Uh, uh, and and then on the side, they just have this business creating malware uh, and infecting phones with it, uh, uh, which I thought was you know it's like. Uh, uh, malware with medical uh, and foosball. Uh, you, it's it, uh, uh, it, it, it's an interesting and probably short-lived uh, effort to make uh, malware mainstream. So uh, this means, of course, if you are infected with Ying Mob's malware, you know where to find them, and you know they've got assets that they can be forced to cough up. Uh, and Lord only knows, I would love to sue them. So give me a call. Uh, that's uh, that's it. Uh, we'll turn to uh, we'll we'll put our uh, uh, interview with uh, uh, Congressman Hurd uh, on as soon as we 
get it. Uh, uh, but this has been episode 124 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, as always, we're glad to have feedback. Uh, um, and if you want us to do CLE, we're getting a couple of uh, requests, but not that many yet. Uh, send it to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, give us a good review on iTunes, other podcast aggregators. Uh, thanks, Alan. Thanks, Michael. Uh, uh, we hope you'll join us next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.